You guys give God praise for Pastor Tim and his leadership for the service this morning. You notice, but he kind of on one this morning. I mean, he coming at dawn for the number of kids they got. Got the same number of kids. He giving out $5 certificates after the service in somebody else's name. And then he up here calling cookouts barbecues. That's a real mistake, right? Barbecue is the food you eat. Cooking out is the activity. I know, I know there's some regional differences, but being from the South, I just need to make things right, straight, right? How y'all doing? Good. Pray with me this morning. God, you are our beloved. You are the pearl of great price. You are our wisdom. You are hope. You are the fear of Israel. You're the God who speaks and whose every word is truth. You're the God who loves and whose love never fails. You're the God who redeems us buys our life back from the pit and makes us your own special possession. You're the God who sanctifies us because you yourself are holy. You're the God who keeps us until the very end, promising never to leave us nor forsake us. And you're the God who rewards us with a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You are our God, and we are your people. And we pray, visit us this morning in the preaching and teaching and the hearing and the believing of your word. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's nothing quite like finishing a good book. I don't know what's on your summer reading list this summer. Uh, I don't know when's the last time you've read a great novel. I enjoy reading good novels. In fact, just to, you know, let you in on a little something here, I enjoy reading a good romance novel. Not the, not the Favio type, but a good Christian romance novel by an author like D. Henderson, where every story includes uh, a conversion, includes an apologetic issue. All the characters have super fantastic Uh, careers and and big life changes and discover romance. There's something about a good novel. When you finish a good novel, it's like you close it and you have that satisfied feeling. Sometimes you go, oh, I should just start this over again right now. And other times you just kind of sit in that satisfaction. I hope you feel something of satisfaction as we come to the end of Leviticus chapter or the end of Leviticus. And we take a look this morning at chapter 27. Uh, Chapter 27 in some ways feels odd to scholars and commentators uh, and maybe to us as we read it because we come to this chapter and it's like, well, it feels like he goes back to some other subjects and things. Rather than sort of landing the plane, I mean, he starts introducing things like vows. And we read things that might feel at first a little bit troubling like, 
why is a man's valuation more than a woman's valuation? Or you get down to the end of it, and he talks about people who are devoted to destruction. It's like, really, God, at the end of the book, you got male-female stuff and capital punishment? Can you give us a softer landing, please? But I want to suggest to you that God knows what he's doing when he's writing his books, right? Uh, and the way this book ends is really quite appropriate. But let's, be, let's remember where we've come from. We began in chapters 1 to 5 with thinking about the instructions that God gives Israel for having the cookout. Right? At the cookout, there are going to be certain kinds of uh, offerings there, certain food that's presented either to God or to the priests or shared with each other. You're going to have the burnt offering and the sin offering. You'll have the peace offering and the grain offering. You'll have the, the drink offerings. And when it's all said and done at various points in times, Israel is eating with God. They're enjoying fellowship and communion with God. Now, you can't have a good cookout unless you pay attention to who's on the grill. Not everybody can be on the grill. We need real grill masters on the grill, right? I know there's some brothers out here who claim to be grill masters. <laughs> Vernon, Vernon. Uh, claim to be grill masters. And I haven't, I haven't sampled the fare. There are just a couple brothers I can vouch for. I can vouch for Mike Coven. Boy, bad on the grill. I can vouch for Mike Coven. I, I can vouch for John Cawley. That man mean with some ribs now, all right? So you got to pay attention to who's on the grill. And so in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, uh, God gives instructions regarding the responsibilities of the priests in making the, the sacrifices. And you want to make sure that the, cook, the, the grill master got clean hands. And so chapters 9 and 10 are about sanctification, about consecration, about their holiness. Chapters 11 to 15, uh, we covered the whole issue of clean and unclean. What things are clean, that is, they are sort of in their normal condition, able to be used in normal ways. What things are unclean, they are defiled by sin, they are in some way polluted. And what of those clean things or those unclean things that can be sanctified and devoted to God and therefore holy? And so we thought about the ways in which certain animals were clean and unclean, the ways in which human beings are clean and unclean, depending on what's happening with them. And all of that leads, really, to the, the top of the mountain of this book, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, that one day every year well, there would be a special sacrifice made that would make atonement for all the sins of all the people for the entire year. It's a day where they were to afflict themselves, they were to, to humble themselves and to confess their sins, and a day in which they were to receive this forgiveness from God through this sacrifice of atonement. Now, the first 16 chapters are really focused on Israel's worship. Then in chapter 17 through the end of the book, the book turns from worship to witness, how they live publicly. It turns from the offerings made to God to the ethical treatment they are to give other people. So chapters 17 to 20 talked a lot about neighbor love. Talked about neighbor love as it related to uh, how you treated blood because life is in the blood. Talked about neighbor love in terms of sexual purity and holiness. It talked about neighbor love uh, in terms of the actual treatment of your neighbors, not oppressing your neighbors, but doing good to your neighbors. Chapters 21 and 22 circle back again to the holiness of the priests, 
Uh, here it, it makes reference to the priest's family and marriage and things of that sort. And then chapters 23 to 25 are all about feast and Sabbaths. Again, God has been interested, most interested, in eating with his people, fellowshipping with his people, and having his people experience rest with him. So relationship with God is not about striving. Not, not fundamentally. I mean, there may be some things we have to strive against or strive for, but fundamentally, what God wants for us to do is to eat and sleep. To eat, to eat with him and to rest with him. You can tell I got a an uh, inner fat person that loves to come out. I got an outer fat person that loves to come out. Until we come down to chapter 26. Chapter 26, God spells out the covenant obligations again. He reminds them, you are in a special relationship with me, a relationship that I have with you, Israel, and no other nation. And in this relationship, there are certain things you're obligated to do. And for your obedience, there's blessings. And for your disobedience, there are curses. And in the end, I'm going to be the one that redeems you. That might have been a good place to end the book. But chapter 27 in God's wisdom is added because whenever we hear God speaking to us of his great and exceeding promises, and whenever we really think about how much God has done for us or how much he has promised for us, the natural reaction for us is to respond by making some commitments of our own, by making some promises of our own. And chapter 27 addresses Israel and addresses Israel on this issue of their vows, their promises to God, their response to God's covenant. And what I want to do to end is ask and answer four questions this morning. If you're the note-taking type, this is my outline. Number one, should we make vows to God today? Should we make vows to God today? Number two, who or what can be vowed or devoted to God? Who or what can be devoted to God? Number three, what if you messed up by making a vow? What if you messed up by making a vow? And number four, who or what cannot be devoted to God. Actually, we'll flip those. Let's flip those. We're gonna, God's editing the sermon right now. So number three is who or what cannot be devoted to God. Number four, what if you messed up? That's a better way to end, right? This means yes. This means no. All right. Amen. First question, should we make vows to God at all? Now, chances are you've already made a vow to God, right? Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. Chances are, everybody in this room, maybe from the time that they were about five, has been in the habit of making vows to God. And you're like, what you talking about, Pastor? You ever prayed like this? Lord, if you will just give me, then God, I promise you, I will. That's the basic form of a vow. Right? If you've ever prayed like that, even if you weren't a Christian, or even if you were a Christian, if you ever prayed like that, you have made a vow to God. And the question is, should we do that? Should we devote ourselves to God in that way? Now, the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. 
It depends. This is the business that's happening here in verse 2. Notice where it says, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord. Now, a special vow was a promise to God. That's all a vow means. It's a a promise to God. It is special in the sense that God did not command it. This is something that the individual was doing voluntarily. This is something they wanted to do, not something that God required. And it's personal. And this vow that was made to God could be made in times of distress or in times of celebrations. We'll see examples of each. And as we've just said, often made in prayer. And so um, the question is, should we do this or not? And again, the answer is yes or no. Let me give you the no first. No, don't vow to God. Don't make a vow under at least three conditions. Number one, do not vow to God if you're lying in your vow. Got quiet. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. You can flip back over there a couple pages if you want to. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12 says, You shall not swear, or make an oath or vow, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Remember, God's name is meant to be sanctified among his people, right? meant to be holy among his people, we certainly should not use his name in vain or use his name in a false vow. That is, to treat his name as unholy. So we shouldn't be making promises that we know we aren't planning to keep. Number two, we should not make rash vows. We should not make rash vows. Don't make vows unthinking. Don't make vows in a hurry. Don't make vows just kind of out of the flesh or out of the, out of the moment. There's a striking example of this in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. There's a soldier there by the name of Jephthah. He's a judge in Israel. And uh, Jephthah is going off to fight the uh, Ammonites, I believe it is. And he's asking God for victory in the battle. And he makes this rash vow. He makes this tragic vow. Jephthah chapter 11, or Judges, excuse me, chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. We read these words. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, I don't know what this man expected to come out of his house. I don't know if he was living with animals or what, but it don't make no sense to me. God, if you give me victory in this battle, then when I get home, the first thing to come out of the door to come meet me, I'm going to sacrifice as a burnt offering. And the Bible tells us his only daughter came out the house to meet him. And Jephthah was shattered, and he kept his vow, and she encouraged him to, and two months later, she was offered to God. That's not the kind of offering that God wants. These rash offerings, these rash vows with tragic consequence, so don't make a rash vow. Number three, do not make a vow to God When you're promising something you have no ability to do. When you're promising something you have no ability to do. So Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 actually has a, there's a section there where he is teaching on 
oaths and vows. And he says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 36. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I felt personally attacked reading that. What is he saying there? You, you don't have the ability to affect the color of your hair, right? Why, why are you vowing? Why are you making oaths on your head? Why are you making oaths on your life? Why are you sort of making promises, assuming an ability that you don't have? That's a bad vow. So in those circumstances, do not make a vow even to God. But now there's some times where it, it's fine to make vows. It could be wise and appropriate to make vows to God. And these are times when the vows express simple faith and commitment to God. They can be offered in times of duress. They can be offered in times of commitment. So Israelites made vows, number one, when they were desperate before God for his blessing. You're probably ahead of me here. You think of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She's in a hard situation where she can't have children. Uh, there's another wife in the picture who has had children and who teases her, and so she has felt persecuted and ostracized as women without children in that culture would have felt. And she is before the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. This is what the Bible says. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. You guys remember that touching story? It turns on that vow. And in fact, the Lord did bless her. The Lord did remember her. And she gave birth to Samuel. And what did she do? She went to the temple and gave Samuel to the temple and to the priest and said, he is dedicated to the Lord's service. So in this time of, of, of desperation, she was calling upon the Lord and vowed to the Lord and kept her vow. Now, here's another circumstance in which you might make a vow to God is when promising to worship God. When promising to worship God. That's an appropriate time to make a vow to God and to commit yourself uh, in promise and in loyalty to God. Now, there's an example very early in the book, in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, verses 18 to 22, Jacob has wrestled with an angel. He's wrestled with the Lord. Uh, and he is woken up the next morning, verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it, verse 19. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be, my, be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. 
There's Jacob making himself a vow of religious commitment to God, that if God takes him into this land that he is, is, is sojourning into and is faithful to provide for him and to bring him back, he's saying, God, you'll be my God and I will worship you. I'll dedicate this place to you. And in this place, your name will be exalted. So yes, there are times to make vows and there are times to avoid vows. But let me tell you what the Bible says about vows. It's actually better not to vow than to vow and not keep it. Over and over and over, the Bible says that from the books of Moses right down to the New Testament. So turn with me in your Bible. I should have told you we'd spend the bulk of our time on this point. Um, So turn with me in your Bible to um, Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 to 2. So you're already in Leviticus Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is the next book. You just turn to your right till you come to Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. And here, Moses is speaking to Israel, teaching them about vows. He says, um, Numbers chapter 30, verse 1, uh, God says, Moses, or says, excuse me, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord has commanded, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth, right? So if your mouth writes a check, you got to cash it. If you make a vow or pledge, you must keep your word. Now, you're in numbers, keep going over to Deuteronomy. Keep turning to your right, Deuteronomy chapter 23 this time. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 21 to 23, has very similar teaching. So Deuteronomy uh, is is the second giving of the law, uh, and here Moses is restating some things he said before. So we see in verse 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. See, the teachings there is clear, right? If you vow, don't delay and fulfill it. Do it, because if you don't do it, the Lord's going to hold you responsible. It's sin. And he says, instead, don't vow. Not vowing is not sin. It's fine not to vow. This is voluntary, but if you volunteer, then you must do it. Two more passages. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Here, the writer of Ecclesiastes is giving us wisdom, wisdom literature from God, and and he takes up this issue of vows in chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 1, says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And you go, well, what's the sacrifice of fools? Next verse. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Verse 4, it makes it very specific to vows. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. 
pay what you vow. Verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let, your, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Do you see that? Better to not vow than to vow and not pay. One more to bring it to the New Testament. The Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. As Pastor Tim uh, pointed out earlier, this is the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. So much rich teaching. He seems to have in mind the passages that we just read. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, our Lord and Savior says this, Again, you have heard that it was said of those of, to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Here's what Jesus says, verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, by the time you get to Jesus, he seems to take vows off the table, doesn't he? Takes oaths off the table. Says, basically, we're to be people of our word. If we say yes, we should do yes. If we say no, we should do no. Here's the point of all of this. That spiritual devotion to God requires, at a minimum, that we be people who keep our word to God. There's no way to be holy to God, which is what this book is about, without actually being people who keep our word to God. We should never break our promises to God. And breaking promises to God is basically using worship and religion to lie to God or to try to manipulate God. Isn't that what we were often doing at 5 or 10 or 15 or 25 or 35 when we would say, oh God, if you would just do this, then I would do this. How often was that just manipulation? Attempts at it, at least, for God cannot be manipulated. And if we, if we strike a bargain with God, we have to hold up our end of the bargain. But it's wiser not to promise, not to vow, not to, not to use our freedom in a way that binds us in ways that God has not required of us. As Matthew 5, 37 put it again, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. God doesn't need our extravagant promises to be pleased with us. He doesn't. He doesn't need us to do some extraordinary demonstration of commitment in order for him to know whether or not we're real in our faith. He simply requires faith. And faith looks like keeping our word and simply giving straight answers. We devote ourselves to God by stewarding or keeping our word, beloved. So should we make vows? Well, you're free, but probably not. Why should our mouths lead us into sin? This brings us to our second question. If we are going to vow, who or what can we devote to God? Who or what can we vow to God? That's really the subject of the bulk of the chapter. We see four things that can be devoted to God in ancient Israel. Number one, there are people, verses 2 to 8. Number two, there are animals, verses 9 to 13. 
Number three, there are houses, verses 14 and 15. And finally, there is land, verses 16 to 27. So to devote any one of these things to God was to set it aside for God's use and God's purposes. That's what's happening here with the devotion of people, for example, in verses 2 to 8. It was like Hannah in 1 Samuel to take someone and say, this person belongs to God. I vow this person to God. Now, we do that today, don't we? Think about it. Even in this church, when we have baby dedications, we are devoting that child to God. We are saying we receive this gift from God, we offer this gift back to God, and we do that taking vows. The parents vowing to raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to set an example for that child of faith and faithfulness to God, and the congregation vowing to keep our covenant, to partner with those parents to raise that child uh, as as we have promised, to raise that child uh, with an eye toward that child's service to the Lord. Those are vows that we are making. We need, we need to take that seriously, right? Now, whenever someone was offered as a vow, the priest had to sign uh, a monetary value to that, to that situation, whether it was houses, lands, uh, animals, or people, right? And in the case of persons, the values assigned differed um, in response to age and response to gender. And the question is, why? Is God being an ageist sexist? Well, no, God is good, right? I think the best explanation here is, is to remember that Israel is a farming, agrarian society, and the work in the temple to which this person would have been dedicated to would have been string, actually quite strenuous, bloody work in the offering of sacrifices, things of that sort. Uh, And I think here the valuation is is recognizing two things. One, and this is what gets lost, it is entirely appropriate to dedicate women to the Lord. In many systems, in a sexist system, that would not have been the case at all. But number two, what it's recognizing is in that kind of society, an agrarian cattle herding society, in a temple and a priest that was really quite strenuous in labor, the persons who were sort of physically, naturally, Um, uh, most able to do that work would have been men just because of biological differences, right? That's reflected in the valuation. So if someone was given up, uh, a man who was 20 years old who ordinarily would have been working with them in the field, he's losing that income, he's losing that value. He's dedicating that value to the temple and that's being reflected in the valuation. So if you don't like that answer, you can get into the commentaries yourself and keep working on it. Let me know what you come up with, right? But there are persons who are dedicated, then there are animals who are dedicated. Animals could, could be vowed to God. There may be clean animals who could be used in the worship of God, verses 9 and 10, and there may be unclean animals that would not be appropriate for sacrifice in the use of worship. Uh, those animals, the unclean animals, would be valued, and then they would be sold or, or ava- available to be sold. They're houses. Again, we, we dedicate our houses too, don't we? If anybody's ever been to a, a housewarming, what is that meant to be? Well, if, if folks are doing it with a clear sort of religious purpose in mind, it is the dedication of that home to the service of God. Some of us even go so far as to anoint the house, right? We get, we get our oil, we put it on the doorposts, we get the drapes are dripping with oil, we smear it on the table. I mean, there's oil everywhere, right? What are we saying when we do that? We're saying this is, this is set aside for God. 
And the things that are done in this home are meant to be things that would be pleasing to God. I wonder if we recognize that those are vows that we're making. I wonder if we take them that seriously. And so houses could be assigned to the service of the Lord, dedicating that way. And again, the priest would come out, make a valuation, uh, and whatever that valuation would be is what, what, what would be sort of assigned to that house in terms of value, whether good or bad. And the same thing would happen with lands. There are two kinds of lands that a person could, could sort of have in their possession. It could be their ancestral lands, the lands that they had gotten that God had given them uh, when they came into the promised land. Uh, and in those cases, if they dedicated the lands to the, um, to the, to the priests, it was meant to be used uh, in a way that honored God, of course, um, and it could be redeemed. But if it wasn't redeemed, remember what Leviticus told us a couple chapters ago, the land belongs to God. And so it will forever be in the possession of the priest uh, and kept in that way. Now, it could be lands that, that you or I purchased from someone else, their ancestral lands. Now, in that case, the law says we have no right to forever hold that land. So in the year of Jubilee, that land would revert back to the ownership uh, of the original owner in that case, right? And so it would be returned in that way. And so the land was sort of handled in in one of those two ways. But again, the Bible's teaching us here, you can mess up your own inheritance with your vow, but you can't mess up somebody else's, okay? Which brings us to our third question. That's who or what can be devoted or dedicated. And now the question is, um, what, what cannot be used in a vow or redeemed in this process? Uh, there are a couple of things, but essentially you can't devote to God something that already belongs to God. Don't try to get slick, right? So verses 26 and 27, right? All of the firstborn since the Exodus, right, since that last plague judgment in the Exodus where God struck down the firstborn except for those houses that had blood over the doorposts, from that time God has said all the firstborn belong to me, whether of humans or of animals, right? And here he's saying if it's a firstborn animal, it's already mine. You can't devote that to me. You can't make a vow to me with that because it doesn't belong to you. And this is the thing, beloved. Whenever we make offerings to God, it needs to be stuff that belongs to us. These offerings are meant to cost us. Because when we are making offerings, when we are worshiping God with things, we are ascribing worth to God. Right? So you may remember this wonderful scene where David is king. And uh, David wants to make an offering to God. And he's going to a threshing floor. I, forgive me, I've forgotten book, chapter, verse on this. If you know it, you shout it out. Don't be wrong because we'll check. Um, David, David wants to make an offering to God, and he comes to this threshing floor, and there's a man here who says, hey, no, you're the king. Take my threshing floor. And David's like, no, 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 no. I can't make an offering to God with somebody else's stuff. I'll buy it from you, and then I'll make the offering right? He's, he's living out this, this principle here. We're going to make an offering to God. It needs to be something that belongs to us, not something that already belongs to God or something that belongs to somebody else. So you should not give tithes and offerings with your credit card. That ain't yours. Right? You, you can't, if, if, if your husband and wife, you got separate accounts, I don't recommend that, but maybe you do. Husband and wife, you got second accounts. You can't come to church, get your wife's checkbook, write a check out your wife's checkbook, 
and act like you gave to God. You're going to pay for that when you get home anyway, <laughs> right? It's got to be yours for it to be meaningful, right? The vow has to be something that belongs to you. And so God is just real clear. If it's an animal, uh, et cetera, if it belongs to me already, you can't dedicate that. Verses 30 to 33, right? Same thing with the tithe. God has already commanded that one-tenth of, of all the sort of produce from the land in ancient Israel, uh, one-tenth of that income was his, right? So you can't come to God and say, God, I, I'm going to vow to you one-tenth of my income. Well, God's like, no, that was already mine. How about we talk about the 90% that I've blessed you with? How are you going to steward that? if you're making a voluntary vow, right? So those are things that cannot be dedicated. Here's another thing that can't be devoted to God, and that's what the Bible here refers to as the devoted things. Now, he says very generally the devoted things, and normally that has reference to, uh, again, the kinds of offerings, the financial offerings that Israelites would make uh, to the temple for the upkeep of the temple and the the worship of Israel. Uh, And so, again, if you have in your own prayer time, voluntarily, just as 2 Corinthians chapter 9 taught, if you have purposed in your heart that this is what you're going to give to the Lord, if you have vowed that to the Lord, that is the Lord's. Right? So when the eagle flies on Friday, you can't be like, well, yesterday, Lord, I was at the mall and I saw these Jordans or I saw this dress. It was on sale. So I'm just going to keep the sale part and give you the other part. Well, no, that's the vow and not keep your vow. Right? So if you purpose in your heart, you're going to give X, Y, or Z. That's something you do in complete Christian freedom. But if the Lord gives you that heart to do it, then do it. If you make that vow especially, then do it. That belongs to the Lord. It's a devoted thing. Or you notice the reference here, the things that are devoted to destruction, verse 29. There were situations in Israel's history um, where certain peoples or or certain animals or things uh, were coming under God's judgment and were to be destroyed as a part of that judgment. And they were not to keep it. I think of two examples, Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 and 19. Remember, they are are about to take the city. They meet Rahab. Rahab helps them spy out the land, spy out the city. And she bargains with them, says, hey, spare spare my family here. But the city itself was devoted to destruction. And they came in and destroyed the city with the exception of Rahab and her family. And sometimes they were disobedient about that. So I'm thinking here, 1 Samuel chapter 15, I think King Saul at Gilgal. They, they go to Gilgal, and God says, now when you take the, when you take the land and you get to Gilgal, I want you to destroy everything uh, except the silver and gold. You can bring the silver and gold back, you can use that in, in worship, but all the animals, all the cattle, the sheep, the oxen, he names it all, put it to, de- it's devoted to destruction. They go, they defeat the people, and they get to looking at the sheep and the animals, and they decide, well, they, he didn't mean kill all the animals and stuff. We're going to come back with the animals. They look good for milk and da-da-da-da-da. And they come back, and the prophet meets the king, and he said, did not God tell you to destroy everything? And, and so like, yeah, we did, man. We wiped them out and da-da-da-da. And the prophet said, well, what's this bleeding and mooing I hear? And the, and the problem is God then judged them for using the things that were devoted to destruction in ways that were not supposed to be used, right? And so 
These are things that cannot be vowed to God. These are things that cannot be redeemed. Uh, These are things that cannot be um, purchased back for God for use, which brings us to the last point. What if you messed up making a vow? Again, isn't the good news that God is gracious and patient and kind? You may have noticed several times when Pastor Tim read, read this so beautifully for us, this mention of redeeming things, redeeming the persons, redeeming animals, houses, and in some cases being able to redeem the land. What is that about? Well, when someone redeemed their vow, they were basically taking the vow back, right? Now, there were two ways you could, you could do that, three ways, I guess. One, you could just break your vow, which is sin. Shouldn't do that. But you notice in a couple of places, it talks about substitutes. So the other way a person might try to get slick is to substitute something, right? So you, you vowed this particular uh, ox to God, and then at some point you wanted to substitute it. Maybe you were like, well, that ox turned out to be stronger than this other ox I kept. So I, I said an ox, so I'll just give him this ox and keep the other ox, right? And God's like, nope, they're both holy. <laughs> you try to be slick, they both belong to me, right? So that was the second way. The third way was actually to redeem things legally, right? And what happens is someone recognizes that I've made this vow and I can't pay it. Or I made this vow and it was rash. And it's like, well, how do I deal with that in integrity, right? How do I deal with that with integrity with God so that I am in some sense keeping my word even though I cannot do that thing that I promised? Well, that's the purpose of redemption here. Right? And so, in the cases of people, you see it there in verses 7 and 8, in the cases of people, they paid the valuation. So if it was a male age 20 or a female age 60, whatever that valuation was, the shekel of the sanctuary, that's what they paid. Now, a shekel was um, basically about the half an ounce or so okay, of silver. That's what it would have weighed in uh, today's sort of language. I mean, you know, I don't know when the last time you were walking down the street, somebody said, hey, bro, can I get a shekel? You know, but that's what it was, about, about half an ounce of silver, right? And so whatever the valuation was in the shekels of the sanctuary, so the money was being standardized that way, right? That's what you paid, right? Now, if a person was poor, see that in verse 8? The priest would decide what he was able to pay, and that would be the cost of redemption, he had dedicated himself or dedicated someone in his family and found out that he couldn't, he couldn't pay that valuation. Again, you just see the mercy and the kindness of God. The priest will have to make an assessment of this is what the poor person can do, so this is what we will do. And one of the beautiful things I think about the book of Leviticus is just all along the way, every time there's a requirement, how God considers the poor, includes the poor, and doesn't burden the poor. So that there'd be no shame in poverty and no exclusion from the things of God because of poverty. There's a beautiful thing about God's heart. In the case of animals, verse 13. Houses, verse 15. Land, verse 19. Notice what happens. And even in the case of the tithe in verse 30, if somebody wanted to sort of try to reclaim their tithe, notice the priest would say, well, this was the value and then add 20%. 
If you could pay that value and one-fifth of that value on top of it, then you could reclaim or redeem that vow with integrity. Now, the idea is this. God's not trying to make a profit uh, off of people's vows. The idea was this, was to make it very costly to redeem something that had been vowed in order to discourage making vows in the first place. That's the whole point. The entire system is designed to discourage foolish and rash vows. It's a kind of accountability that God puts in place. Now, here, here, here again is a key point, I think. Write this down even for our day. Redemption, beloved, is always costly. It's always costly. Here it's a 20% tax on whatever you vowed. But you see how costly redemption is when you stare at the cross. Our redemption, the people that the Father had vowed to his Son, our buyback from sin, our buyback from destruction, our buyback from hell, our buyback from lostness, that cost the Lord. Didn't cost him something out of our pockets. It cost him something that he had, his own son, whom he gave on Calvary's cross for our sin. To buy us back, to redeem us from sin, to redeem us from the law and the penalty of the law, to redeem us from an eternal judgment that we deserve. It cost him something, the blood of his son, the life of his son, that we might be saved. And that we might be rescued. And the wonderful thing is, is that that redemption, that sacrifice, that cost that was paid, it's still buying people back. It's still redeeming people. It's still redeeming people. This is the wonderful thing, Christian, for all those prayers we have prayed, where we have vowed, not even knowing we were making vows, where our lips were leading us into sin, even all those vows that we have broken, all those sins that we have committed in in not fulfilling our word to God, Jesus redeemed that too. That's part of the sin that was nailed to the cross. The foolish sins of speech which we have all committed. God, if you would just do this, I will give you this. Jesus is like, let me go ahead and die for that. You can't do that. You ain't going to keep that. No. He atoned for it. And if you're here, beloved, and you're not a Christian, all the sins of speech that you have committed, Christ has died for those too, for you, that you too might be forgiven just as we have been forgiven, that you might be cleansed just as we have been cleansed, that you might be made right with God again just as we have through faith in Jesus, the one who paid the cost for the sins of the whole world, yours and mine, and the one who brings us back, buys us back, welcomes us home again to God. If you're here, beloved, this morning... Jesus says something very striking. I remember the first time I read it in the Bible, and it hit me, and I've not been able to shake it since, and I I certainly have not been able to live in a way that, you know, is is perfect for it, but it's, it's, it's haunting to me, and I want you to hear it if you're not yet a Christian. Because when Christians talk about sin sometimes as preachers, we always go to the dramatic illustrations, right? Oh, this, that, and the other, right? Big sins. But Jesus says, 
we will be judged for every careless word we speak. That the careless word that you have uttered and that I have uttered was enough to condemn us to hell before a holy God. Now, is there anybody in here who has not said something carelessly or used a careless word? Beloved, we need, we need more than just to have regretted that. We need that atoned for. And the good news is that same Jesus who teaches us that we will be judged for every careless word is the same Jesus who goes to the cross for our careless words and all of our other sins so that you and I can be forgiven. And beloved, if that's you this morning, if you're in need of that forgiveness, if God has maybe poked you on the shoulder because of something you said even last night that you recognize as sinful, I want to encourage you, run to Jesus that that's been brought to mind for you, that's the Holy Spirit. That you feel some guilt about that, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to bring the world under conviction of sin. Do not harden your hearts, but turn to Jesus and put your faith in him. Beloved, we should end this book by thinking about what is our pure and holy passion. Well, that's really our vow. What, what we want is a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. I think if we are interpreting chapter 27 in light of Jesus and in light of the Christian church and what it means to be a Christian, maybe that's the best way to interpret it. Uh, and to finish up this morning, I just want us to look at the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 4. There the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, Speaking of his own ministry for them, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband. He's saying, in other words, I feel a protectiveness over you that comes from God because I've promised you as a church, as a bride, to one husband, namely, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul is, is imagining his apostolic pastoral ministry to be the kind of ministry that a father should have with his daughter, to present his daughter on her wedding day a pure and chaste bride. That's how he's thinking about the church here. In verse 3, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's, in other words, uh, the enemy is crafty. I'm concerned. He's tricked you. And instead of having a mind that is, that is full of a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, you're thinking about some other craziness. And then he says in verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I want you to see the, the, the logic train here, the connections, the parallels. He's saying, I want to present you a pure virgin to Christ. He's talking spiritually there about the church. I want to present you pure to Christ. Which is the same thing as maintaining 
a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, which is the same thing as not allowing any other gospel to confuse you. If we would be a church that kept any vow, this is the vow, that we would be as wholly devoted to Jesus as God's grace and the Holy Spirit would allow. And we would be as wholly protective of each other and protective of the gospel as God's grace and the Holy Spirit would allow. For holiness comes ultimately not by the keeping of the law, but by the looking at Jesus. By the fixing our eyes on the coming Savior who is our blessed hope. It's that adoration for Jesus that, frankly, finally sets us apart. And so we want this kind of pure devotion, this sincere devotion, this chaste devotion that keeps close to Jesus and keeps ourselves immersed in his gospel. This is what I think the Lord wants. It's put well in the words of poetry from Francis Ridley Havergal. He writes, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. That's the testimony we want as we let our yes be yes to Christ and we let our no be no in Christ. May we be a holy, devoted people by his grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we again thank you for Jesus, who is our holiness, who is our sanctification, our redemption, our righteousness, who is wisdom for us. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have been at work in our lives to not only join us to Christ, but by degrees to be making us like Christ. And we pray that more and more you would form us into the image of Christ and the likeness of Christ, and more and more his life should bleed over into and fill our lives, and more and more the holiness of Christ would be our lived reality. We praise you that you have already set us apart in Christ and nothing more than our baptism vows of faith in Christ is ever needed. And we praise you that not only have you set us apart positionally in Christ, but you are by degrees, day by day, um, progressively conforming us to Christ and sanctifying us in him. We want to be holy because you are holy. We want to be holy because you are holy. We want to worship you in the beauty of holiness, in the splendor of holiness. We, we want to know the joy of a personal and vital and living, of a congregational and, and shared holiness, O oh Lord. Make us holy. Keep us holy. Purify in us a devotion to Christ. 
that's not about religious promises and extravagant demonstrations, but is about a very simple and basic and yet unshakable and profound yes to Jesus and no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let our yes to Jesus be yes and our no to the world, the flesh, and the devil be no. And let us know you. Let us know Jesus the fellowship of his suffering, and the power of his resurrection. Let us know him in all of his holiness and splendor. Let us know him, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.